Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this he sucks. Well, he's out. He's out. He's out. Yes, sir. is out. Look at, look at this. Freddy is out. And uh, Dean is mad. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh yeah, welcome aboard John Pielli Passball Show MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is hour two. Uh, we're going to jump right into an interview that I recorded with former Major League pitcher Andrew Lorraine. And Andrew right now is a pitching coach in the Seattle Mariners organization. And we actually touch on a lot of interesting things here. We talk about the young pitchers the Mariners have coming up. We talk about you know him being a Major League starting pitcher and his adjustment to being a loogie in certain spots and you know we touch on a definitely a lot of interesting things so hopefully you guys enjoy this interview with former major league pitcher andrew lorraine and andrew ended up pitching uh including his drafting by the new york mets when he was drafted and he didn't sign he was involved in some way shape or form with 15 different major league organizations and i obviously find that fascinating so here it is my interview with former major league pitcher and current pitching coach in the Seattle Mariners organization, Andrew Lorraine. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Andrew Lorraine. Andrew, what's going on, man? Yeah, definitely, man. Now, uh, you know, obviously you're doing some work. You know, you've been with the Seattle, Seattle Mariners organization for a couple of years now. You know, tell us a little bit about how, how things are going and kind of a little bit about your transition from being a, a pitcher into a pitching coach. Yeah, you know, honestly, it was a really simple transition for me personally. Um, yeah, I've been working with the Mariners about four years, maybe five years next, uh, you know, next spring. So, for me, it was a pretty simple transition going from, uh, you know, career journeyman pitcher uh, to being, uh, you know, just going back to, you know, help one of these kids out and deal with a lot of the ups and downs. Um, I uh, basically, you know, I went from playing and I write the coaching, so there was really no downtime. Obviously, schedules are all the same. It's a matter of, uh, you know, doing a little more, um, a little more tough work, you know, a little more, you know, in-depth stuff as far as, um, you know, work for the organization. But the last five, six years of my career, I was like an extra pitching coach anyway, just helping kids out. I was just still trying to get back to the business, but I was, um, you know, I was a veteran guy on the staff, and, and it wasn't too tough for me. Yeah, now, uh, you know, an important question I always like to ask, you know, uh, you know, pitchers that are transitioning into coaching, same thing with hitters. Um, is there any one... A uh, thing that you take from when you pitched that you want to pass on to pitchers that you see in the organization? Yeah, you know, I, I think the one thing that you realize 
I got the game really hard, and you can't forget how hard it was for you, you know, uh, but for myself personally, there's a lot of ups and downs. Um, I always try to remember that, you know, that just because someone hasn't done something well, you know, maybe it's as hard as I can. So, you know, I always keep that in mind. I don't try to, you know, act like I never went through bad times or I never really, you know, you know, perfect, perfect person. I started the way I worked, yeah, I did the best I could, but there's always going to be down times. So, as far as that goes, I always try to remember that. But, um, you know, in, in particular, you know, I think most coaches end up teaching kind of the way that they, they actually played. So, you know, obviously I'm, I'm big on, on command, you know, command of the fastball, I'm command of the strike zone. I wasn't a power pitcher, so I had to command my pitches and change speed. So I think I really, I really hammer that to the, to the um, pitchers that I work with. Yeah, and I think it's an asset because you see a lot of pitchers coming up are coming up pretty much fastball changeup. Maybe they have a curveball, maybe they have this slider, but you know, essentially a lot of pitchers coming up through farm systems are kind of just learning to command the fastball and then the, you know the change speeds and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I tell our guys they won that rookie ball or the first hit of that A ball. We got Dan Clinton. Yeah, the number one fact between you getting the division or not isn't how big your slider is. Or, you know, or even your changeup is how you playing your fastball. You know, and if they don't get that that to their head from day one, this is not getting a better curveball or a better slider or, you know, if they can have that fastball, they got a chance if they have something decent to go with it. And if they don't play their fastball, it doesn't really matter. They're not going to have a chance to, to, to get to the big leagues. There's very few guys that, you know, don't command very well to pitch in the big leagues. And those guys are all off the charts as far as, uh, as, far as ability and velocity. And there's very few of those guys. Absolutely. Once again, John Pierre here with Andrew Lorraine. Now, you know when you you know when you came up, you know you were drafted uh, by by the Mets in 1990. Um, you know, what, you know, tell us a little bit about what came into that. You know, you ended up not signing, and then you came out a couple of years later. Yeah, you know, I was uh, I was a late bloomer. Um, you know, I kind of didn't go out of college after my my junior and senior year until spring of my senior year until like February and March. Things just started piling in. And, um, you know, Stanford came out a little late and offered me a scholarship, and that was like a no-brainer for me to go to Stanford. I was a good student, and I don't know if I was a Stanford-quality student in my mind, but obviously a chance to go to school there and play baseball for that program, come out two World Series, you know, appearances in a row, and, you know, it wasn't really a big, uh, a big question mark. And then the draft came along after that, I committed. And, um, you know, I was taken very late in the draft. I think everyone knew that I was, you know, an academic kid that wanted to go to school, and, they offered me some money, and uh, I think was the one that talked to me. The gentleman after the marriage now was the uh, sky director for the, uh, well, he was just, he might have been the area sky, but whatever was the case, uh, he was there and offered me some money, but it wasn't enough to take me to going to college. Then I eventually, uh, you know, went to school three years there, uh, played three years, and then uh, Angel took me about three years later, and I went out and played them. Yeah, so, you know, you got yourself, you know, just about, you know, full education at Stanford. You get drafted by the Angels, and now, you know, you're, you're ready for pro ball. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your development through the system. You know, obviously it took you a couple, you know, a couple of years before you got to the major leagues. Yeah, honestly, uh, the way I went through it, I was one of the first kind of fast-track kind of guys. I was a pretty polished college pitcher. Uh, I threw a lot of strikes. Um, my first year I went to short season. Uh, I went to instructional league and I went to winter ball and I was in the middle of the camp the first year. And I was in the big leagues the following July and I just think it was a little fast. Speaking about it now, um, I ended up starting a little merry-go-round, you know, roller coaster thing in my career where I kind of went up, went down, got traded a few times. Uh, maybe if I just got through a full development where I, I played at each level, then I'd a little different as far as, you know, my, my major league longevity, but I pitched a long time. 
but uh, it was always bouncing around. I wonder if maybe it just kind of got there too quick sometimes. But, you know, I will say that, um, yeah, I felt ready physically to pitch in the big when I first got there. But as far as doing the ups and downs of, of, of success and, and learning the game a little bit more, uh, that actually did not help me a lot in my league. Yeah, and I'll tell you, you touched on something important there. Obviously, you know, you end up, you know, traveling a lot of different organizations through trades. You know, you traded for Jim Abbott once, traded for Danny Tartable another time. You know, uh, you know, you talked about, you know, longevity and being able to stick in the same spot for a while. Do you, do you, how much do you think that impacted you as far as your, you know, your development and getting yourself comfortable to be a major league pitcher? Yeah, um, I think it was, I mean, obviously, I was a major pitcher, you know, before I was developed, I think, uh, that's what I was getting at. But uh, I do think that I was ready for everything, you know, to a degree, but I also was never really comfortable. You know, I was always kind of looking for that break, uh, breakthrough, or, you know, I mean, I got back to the big several times with some of the teams, but, you know, I only, you know, I only made one, sp- I only made one team out of spring training, you know, I bounced around a lot. Just a lot of places, um, you know, I was a good pitcher, but I was never a really good pitcher as far as, as far as uh, sticking in the big leagues. But, uh, you know, I do think that, uh, you know, it took a lot of perseverance to go through what I went through, uh, not just to, you know, to go down, get this move here, move there. I played in, you know, I played in Latin America and went ball, you know, 12 different times. And it was quite a journey, and uh, yeah, I think now as a, as a coach, it's easy for me to kind of soak it all in and kind of think about what I went through and, and able to kind of perspective-wise, um, you know, I can talk to a lot of these kids and tell them, this is what I'm through, this is what I'm seeing with you, you know, take it for what it's worth, and, um, you know, you know, that's the biggest asset I have as a coach, is that I've been to pretty much everything you can go through, um, you know, as a player as far as dealing with stuff. Yeah, no question. I was going to jump out here at Andrew Lorraine. Now, you know, when you, you know, you, you end up, you know, for the most part, most of your minor league career, you were a starting pitcher just about the entire time. And, you know, you got, you know, you talk about a couple of the Cups of Coffee, you got the opportunities in the major leagues. You know, you, you, uh, you know, a couple times you end up going in there as a relief pitcher. Now, was, was, that a, was that a difficult transition for you since you were so used to starting in the minor leagues? Yeah, the first time I did it, it was a little tough. So I was in Tacoma in uh, '98, and I, I went to major league camp, and I think Lou Pinella, you know, he said, yeah, you know, we would like your arm, you know, you know, you know, guy forced to go up at some point. And they didn't have a left in the big league that was pitching very really well, so they said, you know, they were pretty comfortable with the starters, and I put in the bullpen in AAA. And I, I really had a tough time adapting to that for a while, but once I figured it out, I thought I was, I was pretty good at it. You know, I went up, uh, you know, September, and, you know, I thought I did pretty well, you know, uh, but, you know, the next year I was off the roster again with the Cubs starting again, and, you know, but I always liked having that versatility. I never thought it was going to be a, a bad thing that I was able to do both. Um, I think I always did pretty well with no candidates. Um, I thought I could have stopped at the left hand reliever, you know, but I didn't have the pure stuff and, and, and made the breaking ball, so just seemed to get my feet out, but I was going out more because of command than because of my stuff.
no question about it. And you, you know, you end up, you know, pretty much from year to year, you know, uh, working out with different organizations and making your impressions that way. Um, you know, you know, in regards to uh, to being a lefty out of the bullpen, obviously the game has evolved to a point where, you know, the situational lefties have become more predominant than they ever have. I mean, maybe even when you're when you pitch, I'm sure, you know, you know, left, you know, lefties, the loogies, the whole thing was, uh, you know, was 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 kind of uh, emerging. But you know, you know, now to the point of your coaching, you know, is there a, you know, is, is there something that you could teach a left-hand pitcher that, let's say, has been a starter like you have, and maybe get them to focus a little more or be able to uh, come up with a certain mentality to get left-hand hitters out on a consistent basis? Yeah, yeah. Honestly, uh, every lefty I have, I mean, obviously the, the, the guys that end up in the bullpen, a lot of them are starters in, in the minor leagues for a while, at least in the first few years, and end up, you know, for whatever reason, getting put in the bullpen or, you know, but I tell them from day one, listen, no matter what happens, if he steps in the box, you know, you got to get these guys out because, you know, first of all, you're going to face a few of them here and there, and one of the best ones you're going to face later on. The best ones are the ones that are going to be moving up and you're going to get them out. You know how to get them out, and uh, you know, I'm really really about that. And you know, as far as in particular, you know, specifically, you know, what they can do, you know, obviously they have to command that fastball to lefties. Not just coming and setting up a breaking ball, because good left-hand hitters can lay off a you know, breaking ball with the ball, you know, unless you have a really nasty breaking ball. So, you know, for me, I love looking to the inside to come into them, because most lefties are low ball hitters, but become high ball hitters against lefties. Um, that the swing flattens out, and they're and they basically flatten the swing, and then the ball up is what they're into. So you know they kind of give you the inside part of the plate and go out and get the ball out of the plate. And if you can come in on left, you can open up the whole plate for everything you do instead of off. Then the breaking ball is more effective. So yeah, obviously I, I just really got to come on the lefties that they have that you get lefties out first and foremost. Now, the point is where you get lefties out is that you know they get them all out, but the lefties definitely stand out a lot more. Yeah, definitely, man. Now, you know, you know, you had a chance to play for so many different organizations, and you know, counting, you know, if you want to count the Mets who drafted you, it's 15 major league teams that you were involved with in some way, shape, or form. Was there any one particular organization that you really felt that you were going to stick around with? I know some of them, you know, you were there. You, you know, the goal is once you're there is to stay there. But was there, there any one certain opportunity you felt like, you know, this was going to be you for the next couple of years? Yeah, uh, so, you know, I had a chance to really stick somewhere and, and you know, and get up with this team. Uh, yeah, the Cubs were a little bit of my longest, kind of one place. I was there for two years. I just felt like, like with them, you know, they had a good opportunity for me. Uh, I had called up a story for them for a year and a half, you know, a little bit in the bullpen. Uh, you know, uh, I went to camp with the, um, you know, I went to camp with the Brewers one year and almost next year I spring training. And had a great year, and they had call up at the end of the year. But it seemed like every year it was always kind of, you know, I wanted to stick somewhere because I was tired of every year going somewhere new because at first it was basically, oh, well, I'm going to go try somewhere else because it didn't work out here. And I thought I just wanted to stick somewhere. And I did it with the Orioles one year. Uh, I went to camp with the Orioles uh, again for the second time in 2005, and I got released. So I ended up out of the matter. So I thought I was going to stick somewhere and put a few years on the team and see if I could, you know, basically, um, um, stick with them and, and make it with my club, but it didn't really work out that way. I just always was going wherever I was called to go, and I was really stuck in one place. <laughs> Once again,
again, John Pialli here with Andrew Lorraine, who's a, a pitching coach in the Seattle Mariners organization. Now, you know, as a pitching coach now, I mean, is, is there, a, you know, you obviously get to follow, you know, a lot of pitchers that got ta- got talent as they're going up. Is there anybody on your radar that you really see that, you know, that you're working with now that may be a, you know, a very good major league pitcher down the road? Oh, well, we have some great prospects here at the Mariners. A few of them are just getting there right now. Uh, Tyler Walker's going to pull up at the end of the year. Tyler's got tremendous upside to be a number one star in the big leagues. Uh, James Paxton, yeah, another lot of potential there. Um, you know, those two kids stand out a lot because they're really far advanced. Uh, you know, Danny Holcomb when he comes back from his injury, um, you know, a lot of ability there. Uh, the kids that I work with this year are, are probably two biggest prospects. Uh, and Thank you for having some time. Best of luck with what you're doing with the coaching and keep up the good work with the Seattle Mariners. Uh, I Solid interview right there with Andrew Lorraine, former pitcher for several different teams and of course the pitching coach in the Seattle Mariners organization. He talk about he talks about guys like Taewon Walker and guys that are coming up through the system. I think over time you're gonna see a lot of these young pitchers come up and uh, contribute at the major league level. And I think the Seattle Mariners are going to have some very good pitching over the next several years. But we're going to take our first break of this program. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on, some baseball topics. And obviously anything going on in your mind, tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. Back after this. Are you searching for something different for your child's education? Consider Atlantic Christian School, where faith and quality education meet. Listen to what one of our students has to say about their experience at ACS. Atlantic Christian School is an amazing school. It has many different qualities that set it apart from public schools. It is an extremely safe environment where students care and look after each other. There is a Bible class where students learn about God and grow closer to Him. In Bible class, we do Chop Shop. It is where we learn to dissect God's words so we can hear His direction for our lives. They have service projects where we learn to serve our Lord and community. Atlanta Christian School is a wonderful place that changes the lives of the students that go there. Come learn about our new lower tuition rates at our open house every Wednesday from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at 391 Zion Road in Egg Harbor Township. Or enroll today. Visit us on the web at acseht.org or call 653-1199 at Atlantic Christian School, where character, Christ, and community count. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin. And Joey Baboots. We host the morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio. And you know, we always see one or two 
accidents along the way. We wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in car care in South Jersey. That's right, James. Red Rose Body Shop. That's Red Rose Body Shop specializes in collision and framework. They're the best in South Jersey for paint and body work, unibody framework, free towing, and free estimates. So call today, 609-927-9454, and check out their website, www.redroseautobody.com. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Red Rose Body Shop, 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue, Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey, 609-927-9454. Red Rose Body Shop is South Jersey's collision specialist. 609-927-9454 or redrosebodyshop.com. Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals at Red Rose Body Shop. Taste is empty loud. Go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is... This is the setting for the greatest story ever told, okay? Faces Empty Blog. 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 Oh, yeah. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, we're in hour two of the radio program. Bases Empty Blog, JohnPielli.com. One of the things I didn't get to touch on last week was the announcement of some of the Veterans Committee's candidates to get into the Hall of Fame this year. And some guys, uh, you know, the, the cast of uh, people involving Tommy Lasorda, Phil Necro, Paul Molitor, Jerry Reinsdorf, some others, uh, had a chance to pick a couple uh, couple guys that were, were uh, you know, they feel from the era which is right now, which is uh, post-integration, of some candidates to be part of baseball's Hall of Fame. And, you know, I, I like I like the, the list. I like some of the players that were mentioned. One of the guys, Ted Simmons, who is a guy that I've written about before, I think he should be a Hall of Famer based on the amount, you know, his success as a hitter and what he did as a catcher. I mean, he it's kind of underrated with what happened, you know, during his career. Guys like Steve Garvey, Dave Parker will get some consideration. Tommy John, of course, the amount of wins that he finished and, of course, being revolutionary for the surgery that he had, which gets used, you know, by just about every pitcher today. And, of course, he was a guest on the past ball show. But managers like Bobby Cox, Tony La Russa, Joe Torre, Billy Martin. I mean, this, these are, this is a very good list. Um, you know, MLB head Marvin Miller, Yankees owner George Steinbrenner, um, Dan Quisenberry. Uh, and Dave Concepcion. I mean, I think, honestly, if I had a chance to vote, I would vote for five out of 12. I would go with Cox and La Russa, and I think they deserve to be in. I would go with Marvin Miller for what he did for the Players Association, getting free agency, the abolishment of the reserve clause. That certainly needs to be noted. He definitely should be in the Hall of Fame. I would vote for Steinbrenner. Obviously, what he did as an owner, you know, he, you know, he has his retractors for things that you could say that he didn't necessarily do right. But he had a philosophy that's represented the most important thing that all baseball teams strive for, winning. And he, he led the Yankees during the last series of success they had. I mean, they had a you know, big postseason drought 11 years before getting to the playoffs in 1977, 1976 when they lost the Reds in a World Series. He got them a pennant, two World Series, another World Series in 1981 where they lost to the Dodgers. Obviously, there was a drought afterwards, but... You know, some people don't want to give George Steinbrenner credit for what happened with the New York Yankees and their latest success. I, I think it's a kind of sour grapes there. I really do. You know, he's a guy that was the owner. He wanted that team to win. He did everything he could to allow that team to win. And the other guy I said, and I've said it before, belongs in a Hall of Fame is Ted Simmons. 
You know, I left out Torrey and Martin. I think Torrey could get in eventually for not only what he did as a manager with the Yankees, but obviously as a player. He was a border, borderline Hall of Fame player, and he's probably a borderline Hall of Fame manager. I think at the end he gets in, but I wouldn't vote for him right now. Billy Martin, in my opinion, is a guy that you know made every team that he went to as a manager better. I think he was a borderline Hall of Fame manager. The unfortunate thing is untimely passing in 1989. Of course, we know the car accident. Uh, you know, him possibly being the Yankees manager for the 1990 season. We'll never know if that would have happened. But here's a guy that made every single team that he managed better. The Yankees, the Twins, the Athletics, the Tigers. They all improved under him. You know, a lot of them won divisions, either, you know, you know had winning records. And hopefully the way things turn out, and I hope, uh, you know, you know, a lot of these players end up, you know, managers end up getting in the Hall of Fame. But, you know, if they do, they're going to join the list of guys that I want to see get in the Hall of Fame, like Al Oliver, Gil Hodges, Vern Stevens. They all belong in the Hall of Fame. Alan Trammell's still on the ballot right now. He's not picking up any traction. Nobody's really voting for him. But he was a mirror image of what Barry Larkin was as a player. If Barry Larkin's a Hall of Famer, Alan Trammell is a Hall of Famer as well. And we talked a little bit about the NL Rookie of the Year award, which obviously ended up going to Jose Fernandez. I told you why I felt it should be Yasiel Puig instead, but you know I have no issue with Jose Fernandez getting the Rookie of the Year award. He had an outstanding year. He deserves it. Another guy that was a candidate on there was St. Louis's Shelby Miller. And Shelby Miller obviously had a very good season. He won 15 games for the Cardinals, but was almost forgotten about during the postseason. And, you know, a regular season that, you know, listen, 15-9, 306 ERA, 31 starts, 169 strikeouts, and 173 in the third innings. Included a game against the Colorado Rockies where he gave up a single to Eric Young Jr. and then retired the next 27 batters to finish with a one-hit shutout. Obviously, he had a lot to do with the Cardinals getting, you know, and winning the National League Central title. But he was not counted on in the postseason. Obviously, Michael Waka and his performance in the postseason had a lot to do with it. Joe Kelly, who was pitching well in September, you know, had a lot to do with it as well. But, you know, Adam Wainwright and Lance Lynn were probably the Cardinals' two top starting pitchers. I mean, Wainwright was 19-9, 294 ERA, 219 Ks, and 241 in third innings. And Lynn was 15-10, 397 ERA, 198 Ks, and 201 in two-thirds innings. So you figure those guys would probably be in a rotation. Obviously, the decision had to do with, you know, with going with either Kelly or Miller. Waka was, you know, pitching very well in September, and you kind of want to ride a hot arm going into the postseason. And remember, it was a competition similar to what happened in, a, you know, the spring training where Shelby Miller and Joe Kelly were battling it out for the last spot in the rotation. Both pitchers pitched reasonably well in spring training, and it, obviously the Cardinals gave the job to Shelby Miller. Joe Kelly pitched a considerable amount of time in a bullpen. And, uh, you know, I was trying to figure out why. Why wasn't Shelby Miller used in a postseason? I thought maybe it has something to do with him not pitching well in September. I looked at his September stats to find out that Miller pitched to a 276 ERA, nine earned runs, 29 in the third innings, and went 3-0 and with 15 Ks in September. Joe Kelly had one more start, pitched a little bit better, 210 ERA in six starts, struck out 20 and went 4-2 and over the same month of the season. So the only conclusion I could come up to was there was some sort of innings limit on Miller. For the season, he threw 173 and a third innings. Kelly, who spent most of the time as a reliever, threw 124 for the season. Waka threw a, a combined 149 and two-thirds innings between the major league level and AAA. So, you know, Miller had some more innings. Maybe the two younger pitchers with less innings thrown 
were something that was kind of something to go to. But, you know, I'm glad to see Miller was nominated for a Rookie of the Year award, even though he didn't win. He, he does deserve credit for the season he had, and I think he's going to be an absolute star and a, and a very good pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals going forward. And imagine them with Waka, with Wainwright, and Lance Lynn, and Joe Kelly. I think they got a very good rotation going forward as this team will probably be good over the next several seasons. But moving on, JohnPielli.com, Bases Empty blog, the whole thing. Uh, something I touched on in the first hour, but I want to get a different perspective here. And my question that I posed in an article that I wrote last week was, can a Major League Baseball general manager's reputation, a bad reputation, affect relations with current free agent Major League players? He has every season a series MLB players test the free agent market in search of a long-term contract. Agents that represent these players are obligated to get the player the best deal possible, both financially and for security purposes. You know, in, in, you know, you know, you look at the way organizations run their team. You got the Oakland Athletics, you got the Tampa Bay Rays, who are obviously looking, you know, to keep their payrolls as low as possible. They're small market teams. They're obviously not going to go out there and sign the big free agent that's out there. So general managers, uh, you know, of those teams are going to have a little bit of a bad reputation when it comes to the big players that hit the free agent market. Let's say Oakland or Tampa Bay has an interest in a big player that's out there on the free agent market. There's a chance that the agents are going to uh, recommend to the players that they not speak with teams that aren't necessarily going to go out there and compete financially with the amount of money that the players will inevitably get on a free agent market. And, you know, I made an example in the article. I said, you know, let's say there's a player out there and, you know, there's a proven player that's earned the right to get to free agency, which, you know, I, I'm talking about the players that have waited six years getting their first time on the open, open market. Let's say there's a player that's out to get a big contract. He's a hometown hero in Oakland. It's his dream to play for the Oakland Athletics. Obviously, I'm painting a scenario. I'm not pointing to an actual player. The, the athletics would have interest in this player, but only on their terms. The player's agent has an obligation to get his client the best deal for the player. Logically, the only time a player's preference to play in a place like this would matter would be if the athletics offer was somewhere in the neighborhood of what the other teams are offering. But what if it wasn't? If the player wanted to play in his hometown of Oakland, he would have to take a serious hometown discount. Let's understand something. It doesn't happen. The decision's up to a player. Would you blame any agent if they suggested to the player to look for the more lucrative deal elsewhere? You know, I think, I think you know, touching on what I said before, you know, we talk about uh, players signing contracts that are happy for the fans. Oh, my God, it wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, oh, I like the contract that he signed. He could have gotten more money elsewhere. Well, if the player could have gotten more money elsewhere, then, you know, God damn it, they should have gotten the contract that they deserve. And I think the same could be said for teams that get the reputation for being stingy. If a general manager tries to lowball a player and his agent, odds are that agent will look you know, for offers elsewhere. And obviously with players that they represent, future players that they represent, they're going to remember the fact that the general manager has a reputation of looking to lowball players in regards to get the best deal that suits the organization as opposed to what suits that player. And I understand how general managers have a responsibility to their organization to not overdo it in regards to bringing in free agent players. It's obvious that some teams did not agree with that and are, in our own words, doing what they have to do to win, i.e. the Dodgers over the last couple of years, i.e. the Yankees over the last 20 years or so. But that leads free agent players getting better deals by teams that are willing to spend more. And I know a lot of people are fed up 
with teams going out there spending ridiculous amount of money for free agents. You look at what the Angels over the last couple of years, it hasn't worked out by getting guys like Albert Pujols and Josh Hamilton. And you could keep pouncing and you know dominating that point as much as you can. But but if a general manager has that reputation of being a guy who's going to lowball every single free agent that comes in, then obviously the free agents are not going to look at that team as being a place where they want to sign. And my example, obviously, is Sandy Alderson and the New York Mets. Obviously, the team has had some financial hardships over the last couple seasons. And that's been part of the reason the team pay- team's payroll has dropped from the $140 million range to where it is now. You know, The other reason is Alderson's and ownership's decision to rid themselves of the respons- of the responsibility of paying players for the next several seasons. They point continuously to the deals that didn't work out like Jason Bay and Johan Santana, but you can't sign players that way. You have to sign players for market value. And a fair question ha- has to be asked whether Sandy Alderson is willing to pay market value for a player he wants. It's easy to get a player who's coming off of a bad season that could come to a team for a low-money deal, but you can't build your franchise that way, particularly when you have so many needs. You know, the same thing can be said about players that are coming off of a serious injury. Raphael Fercal, Corey Hart, guys like that that I mentioned before. Now, you know, there is no way, however, to convince a player entering free agency for the first time to take a less-than-market-value to come to Flushing, outside of Robinson Cano and Jacoby Ellsbury and maybe Shinsu Chu. There, there's no player on the free agent market that should command more than $100 million in a contract. Guys like Irvin Santana and Ricky Nolasco have leaked to the media that their players are seeking such deals from the agents. Yes, I'm sure these players would be excited to get such big contracts, but it's posturing by their agents. And you've got to understand another thing that happens this time of year is that the agents have a responsibility to get the players the most amount of money possible. So the fact that stuff like this leaks to, to, to the media that certain players are looking to get paid a lot more than they were supposed to get or projected to get, obviously the agent has the right to do their job to get them the most money possible. It doesn't mean the players are going to get it. So somewhere along the line, you have to find the fine line into what an agent is posturing to get the player the most money possible to what is a reasonable deal. And you could use the kind of the, the, quali- the qualifying offer, which has been used over the last couple of years, $14 million, is about a number that you think would be fair for a player to get on an average annual value basis. But that includes guys like Curtis Granderson or Nelson Cruz, guys that I think the Mets would like to pick up if they can. But if they're going to pick them up, they're going to have to give them something along the lines of a four-year contract. I know fans don't want to hear that, and we touched on this in the first hour. Fans get so upset when players get paid because it's like money coming out of their own pockets. But the bottom line is Curtis Granderson and Nelson Cruz are going to get a four-year contract from somebody. If it's not the New York Mets, it's going to be another team that's willing to pay what it takes to get a player like that. Curtis Granderson and Nelson Cruz in the Mets lineup would be phenomenal. It would upgrade them to a point where they would have a middle of the order. You go from Daniel Murphy to David Wright to Granderson to Cruz, you obviously have some stability in the lineup. But in order to do that, you have to pay for it. And some people don't want to do that. And Sandy Alderson's likely going to determine his success on what player or two he targets in the offseason. Yes, it will matter who he chooses to bring in. Obviously, if they don't help the offense, if the player gets hurt, it's going to be a factor. But also the type of player is interesting as well. He needs to bring in a player that has the track record or the ability to make their offense better and more productive than it's been over the last couple seasons. 
and you know you look at an off season and you know you, you imagine you know the type of player that can go out there we talked about Marlon Burr getting the 16 million from the Philadelphia Phillies over two years you know that's about what he's worth and you know some some could say now is is the right time to bring in that type of player but who is it it's not going to be Cano. It's not going to be Ellsbury. It may, maybe Chu. I don't think so. But, you know, you look at guys like Granderson and Cruz, like I just mentioned, Jahani Peralta, even Carlos Beltran, who I know a lot of Met fans hate, I, I think would be phenomenal to see Carlos Beltran come to the New York Mets. But the bottom line is, are the Mets willing to pay market value for a player that's going to address their needs? The answer to this question is going to be the same answer to whether the New York Mets will be competitive in the 2014 season. But once again, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take another break. After that, we're going to finish up what's been a solid program right here on the MTR Radio Network. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call, 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. You're listening to MTR Radio, powered by mtrmedia.com. Hey guys and gals, want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on HGTV? And come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week, bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Bunday Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day, just $12.99 per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult, and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half-price appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WINGS. That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal, served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope to see you there.
Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to finish up the program today by playing an interview I recorded with former Orioles catcher Willie Royster. And Willie had a long uh, career throughout the minor leagues, getting to a point where he made his major league debut in the 1981 season. And we get to hear about everything that went over those trials and tribulations. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this spot with former Orioles catcher Willie Royster. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former major league catcher Willie Royster. Will, how you doing, buddy? Uh, it's good to see, man. And uh, yeah, obviously, you know, you had a chance. You know, you you were you were drafted by the Baltimore Orioles in the early part of the '70s. You end up, you know, coming up with a cup of coffee with the Orioles in 1981. Tell us a little bit about, you know, come coming up through the system, getting drafted, the whole thing. You know, from 1972. Well, it was it was a great experience. If I had to do it over, I'd do the same thing. Um, I um, had an eye injury in '73. It kind of um, derailed me for a while, but um, the, the the idea of coming up with the Orioles was great. It was, at that time, they were a, um, a fundamentally sound organization, believed in good defense, pitching, and a three-run homer, and uh, that pretty much carried me away. It, it taught me the game, and I had the opportunity to play for good coaching, Cal Ripken Senior. And um, he had the opportunity to see his son, Cal Jr., develop and come up to the organization as well. Yeah, that must have been pretty special. Now, you know, you get you get a chance. Obviously, the Orioles at the time they were drafted were, in addition to them being fundamentally sound, they were a very good organization. The team, you know, will put up good records year in and year out at the major league level. Um, you know, as you're, as you're coming up through the system, you know, it looks like you started out, you know, you were catching and playing a little bit of outfield. Was there ever a transition to becoming a full-time catcher for you, or is that something that you were, you were able to do pretty much before you were drafted? I was a catcher before I was drafted. Um, I played um, rookie. It was the first year, 72. Then number one pick was a guy by the name of Randy Thomas. So I had to wait my time behind him. 74, I think it was, my first year in Miami A ball was the first year I was able to play uh, full-time. And I had the injury at the end of 74. Um, at that time, Eddie Murray was coming along. Um, it was playing with me. And after the injury in 74, it took me, I guess, until 78 before I had the opportunity to play again on a regular basis. Um, and in 1981, 1981 was the year they sent me to AA. The deal was to go there and help out with a new manager at the time, was Mark Wiley. And um, they had a couple of young pitchers they wanted me to work with. Once again, John Pielli here with Willie Royster. Now, Willie, of course, in uh, 1981, you end up going back down to AA. And, you know, you end up having a pretty good season down there. But, you know, there's, a, you know, there's obviously reasons for you, for you to do that. You had the opportunity to work with some younger pitchers. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, um, we had a new um, a manager at that time by the name of Mark Wiley. And this was his first go-around, I guess, for managing in, in, in uh, the modeling. And I go with him because we had a lot of players. Um, I guess the best known would be uh, we had a guy by the name of Storm Davis that came to the Orioles. Uh, we had uh, Bill Swag, Swaggerty with the Orioles um, that played during that time as well. So um, my job was really to handle these guys and, and kind of help them through the season. 
we um, had a pretty good team. And um, also quite odd about it was we had a gentleman by the name of Victor, Victor Rodriguez, who's now the, the hitting instructor for the Red Sox. So Victor just won a World Series here this past year. Yeah, that's awesome. But, season you hit over 30 home runs that year and I believe that gets you uh, you know a little bit of call up to the major league team now you know tell us a little bit about you know your experience and you know what it felt like to finally be in a big show it was it was a, it was a huge relief you know, I was always balanced I had a battle with whether I could play there or not um, only because when I when I received the injury in 74 was hit in the eye I was trying to bump the ball to raise my batting average to 270 after every good year. Um, I was hitting the eye with the ball, um, and it, it basically destroyed that eye to the point where I had no depth perception. I could see, but no depth perception. And as far as everyone else was concerned, I was done. Um, but I continued to stay with it until I worked it out um, was able to compensate with the other eye as much. But I felt I could still play, and, I, and the guys that I was playing with were in the big leagues. I felt I played with them then, I could still play with them now. The opportunity finally uh, came up in 81, which, um, as I said, I had to go to the double A team um, with Mark Wiley, but I didn't care. It was an opportunity to play on in 69, and if I could still play, it would show. And, um, and, and I got the guy, the opportunity. Southern League was a tough division, it was a tough league. A lot of road trips, a lot of traveling. We had good ball players in the Southern League. And um, a lot of guys left the Southern League and went to the big league. So it wasn't as if it was a bad thing for me, but it did give me the opportunity that I was waiting for. Yeah, and of course, you know, you end up going to, you know, on the you know, Orioles team in 1971. You kind of get a little chance to, like you said, re reunite with some of the players you came through the system with. Yeah, that must have been pretty special, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the guys that, that was there was gentleman by the name of Bobby Brown. The Orioles, when I was drafted in 72, he was a odd draft for them as well. And um, both of us have been together since we were 13 years old through a scout. So we knew each other. We were real good friends, 
graduated in 76, and he went on to go to the big leagues with a few teams. But when I, when I got there, we were playing the Yankees, and it was good to see him there as well. Um, Eddie Murray, uh, we had come along with him. Um, you know, needless to say, he was there. He was starting his career or in the midst of it. Um, Cal was there. Some of the pitchers, Mike Flanagan, John Fland, Dennis Martinez. I caught those guys in the minor leagues. Um, Mike Willis. So it was like a chance to reunite and catch up. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, the 1981 season, which was marred by the uh, the, the players' strike that year, I'm sure that had a, you know, probably had a little impact on you as well as everybody else, right? It did, it did. Um, but as I said, that, that also was the opportunity. You know, I, no one was playing in the big league, so it was an opportunity to have that bat. And that's what, what is important during that period of time was to get your bats. Um, to show whether or not you could play, you know, to um, to have the stats so that if anything happened during that period of time, at least you had the opportunity to move up. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, John Fiele here with Willie Royster. Of course, you know, in the next couple seasons, you know, you hang around in the minor leagues. Um, did you ever feel like you were going to get, or in your own mind, you felt like there was a reasonable chance that you could have gotten another shot in the big leagues? Now, um, after the 81 season, um, and I was told basically that, you know, that, that um, yeah, people wanted to see Rick Dempsey, not Willie Royster, and I came from, you know, my farm director. Um, and I was sent out to Evansville, Indiana, spent some time there, and I could, I could see the writing on the wall. And at that time, we had a business, Eddie and I were doing you know, single-family homes. And I knew that I wasn't going to be in the big leagues. He was there, and, but we needed someone to see, to oversee what was going on. And it, it was time enough for me to quit. I had achieved uh, what I thought I could do. I knew I could play there. And get, you know, after '81, it was like, um, yeah, I'm okay. I, I can walk away now and feel good about it. So that's basically what happened. Now, you ever you ever have any thoughts about uh, you know involving yourself in the game of baseball at all, or doing anything in regards to let's say even on a lower level to continue with baseball, or is it something that you know once you once you retired or once you stopped playing, it was kind of over? It was it was sort of kind of over because to, you know at that time becoming a coach in in, um, in baseball, you had no um, negotiations. Um, I mean, my, he was based, our coach is, is based on the team that they have. I had no control of that. If I was given a team that didn't do well, well, you know, the, 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 the opportunity to be a coach wouldn't be there long. So if I didn't have control, I was better off outside the game, um, feeding my family through the skills that I had acquired during the game. I mean, I was at that time a union competent. And um, I was making more money than those guys who were coaches. And I didn't want to go back and have to um, put up with the same um, politics that was going on in the game. You know, someone liked you, he was fine. If they didn't like you, he was out of the game. And I had enough. I wanted to have control over what happened in my life at that point. And it was a lot easier for me to control myself and what happened in my life by moving on in the construction business, which led me to New Jersey and to where I'm now, uh, 
still in New Jersey. Yeah, listen, man, you had a good ride, and, you know, it looks like, you know, you're doing pretty well now. So, Willie, I want to thank you for having some time today. appreciate you giving me a couple minutes, and, uh, you know, keep up the good work. I appreciate it. Uh, it took so long to get in touch with you. <laughs> no problem at all, my friend. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot. Willie Royster, obviously you hear about his trials and tribulations in the major leagues. But last thing I want to hit up on is uh, something I wrote about. And this past season was the 20th anniversary of the last team to win over 100 games in a season and not make the playoffs. And that was the 1993 San Francisco Giants. And, of course, 1993 was the last MLB season before baseball expanded its playoff format. And obviously, with the system set the way it is now, it's probably impossible for a team to win that many games without making the playoffs. Their rookie managers finished, you know, that season just finished his 20th season as a major league manager. And, of course, is Dusty Baker. Uh, out of the players on a team, there are two current MLB managers, a pitching coach and a bench coach in the major leagues. Among their relief pitchers, there were three pitchers who would save 40 games at least once in a season. Among other players that are, were on that team was a pitcher who became the first in 100 years to strike out the first eight batters he faced in a major league game. Uh, you know, the 1993 season, of course, was also Barry Bonds' first season after he signed a big contract coming over from the Pittsburgh Pirates. The Giants had a solid everyday lineup. Darren Lewis led off and played center field, followed by second baseman Robbie Thompson, left fielder Bonds, third baseman Matt Williams, first baseman Will Clark, right fielder Willie McGee, shortstop Royce Clayton, and catcher Kirk Manwaring. And remember, Will Clark's last season with the Giants was 1993 as well. The bench featured guys like Dave Martinez and Mark Carrion, Todd Benzinger, Mike Benjamin, and backup catcher Jeff Reed. And, of course, Bonds and Williams were pretty much, you know, led the offense, and they also got very good contributions from Will Clark and Robbie Thompson and, and a young guy by the name of Royce Clayton. And, you know, the pitching staff led by guys like Bill Swift and John Burkett, who both won 21 games that season. They also did need 11 other pitchers to make four or more starts for them. And, you know, if, they, if you had to round out the rotation, it would consist of guys like Trevor Wilson, Bud Black, and maybe Brian Hickerson, or, you know, somebody along the lines of a Jeff Brantley. And Jeff Brantley was a reliever and a starter that season. Rod Beck was their closer. He was dominant. Kevin Rogers had his only big season in the major leagues, was great from the left-hand side. Dave Burba both started and relieved. They had, they had the tools, I think, to win a major league, you know, pennant or World Series championship. Of course, you know, the Braves ended up beating them that year. They lost to the Phillies in the NLCS, who lost to the Toronto Blue Jays in a World Series. But it's interesting to think about what would have happened if the Giants were in the postseason instead of him. Would Barry Bonds have won his only World Series? Remember, the Toronto Blue Jays were very good that year. That was Joe Carter. You know, winning the World Series with a three-run homer that he hits in Game 6 of the World Series against the Phillies. But it's very interesting to see what would have happened if the Giants would have ended up beating out the Braves. But remember, the Braves did have the better pitching, and I think that's something that has to be looked at as well. But, you know, I want to thank uh, Andrew Lorraine and uh, Willie Royster for being part of the program. Of course, Len Berman and Frank Bullock for being part of the program in the first hour. We'll be back with you next week. ton of the stuff going on in Major League Baseball. I'm sure we'll have some more free agent signings to jump into. And obviously the interviews. Don't forget to tweet at me at John underscore Pielli and like my Facebook page, johnpielli.com, as well as MTR Radio, America's radio station.